This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Amy Goldman is a gardener, author, artist, and longtime advocate for seed saving, plant breeding, and heirloom fruits and vegetables. Her mission has for many years been to celebrate and catalog the magnificent diversity of standard open-pollinated heirloom varieties and their conservation. Her books include The Complete Squash, A Passionate Grower's Guide to Pumpkins, Squashes, and Gourds. And most recently, she's written The Melon. She joined me in conversation earlier this season to share more from her home and garden in upstate New York. Welcome. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm delighted to be here with you today and talk about all things gardening, food gardening in particular. You have such a long history, and anyone who sees a cover of one of your books knows your signature style and feel. It really speaks to where your heart is and your long career and what you describe as a lifelong passion for some of this work. Describe for us your current sort of garden and nature-based place and practice in the in the world right now, Amy? All right. Well, I am situated in the Hudson Valley of New York. I've been here for over 30 years, living on an old uh, farmstead, a dairy farm that was founded in 1788. And uh, the soil that I've been working with and from which all my books uh, emanated Mm-hmm. Uh, is is kind of poor and rocky and minimal. Bedrock is never far away. So I've spent the last 30 years of my life trying to turn bad into good. And I'm mm. still not done. I kind of wrote a book about that, um, my story, my journey on this land, the old Abraham Traver farmstead. And that book was called Heirloom Harvest. Yeah, it's been an interesting journey. And in the case of melons, well, I've been growing them for almost 50 years, which Mm -hmm. kind of blows my mind. And you describe this beautifully right off in the introduction. You say, melons are a lifelong love and calling. They stir passions and memories in me. And I think this is true of so many people in the way they resonate with food and how it speaks to both our personal memories, but also just like our genetic cellular memories generations back, right? Right. Yeah. Just so I get a little more of a feel on this, you've been there for a long time working in relationship with this land. How big is your gardened or cultivated space at this point, Amy? I live on a plot of land that's about 200 acres in size. It's three quarters heavily wooded. I have three garden plots located on fairly level terrain. It's hard to find a level spot here. Mm-hmm. But um, together, I think they're, you know, just under maybe two acres in size. Everything I grow in my gardens um, is grist for the mill, yeah. the seed-saving mill, and just total enjoyment of my family and friends mm-hmm. when the harvest comes in. Yeah. There's a a great picture of you in um, the back of a truck with some of your melons. So we'll we'll get further into that, of course. You have several books. Um, One you've already uh, mentioned, which was The Heirloom Harvest. And you also have focused on 
pumpkins, squashes, and gourds in a passionate grower's guide to them. You have another one on heirloom tomatoes from garden to table. And you started off this work with a a, a work on melons. And this most recent book is a refresher and an expansion on that. Talk a little bit about your writing journey and what started it, and then we'll we'll sort of walk through your different passionate gaze focal points and come to why this refresher and why now. Um, but get us started with how you first started writing about them and focusing on some of your individual passions, Amy. Well, you know, I never set out to be a writer or garden writer at all by profession. I'm a clinical psychologist. And the last thing I had written before Mm. the first book was my dissertation. (laughs) So it was a scientific kind of writing. Um, Anyway, I I was well known in certain circles, including uh, the competitive vegetable gardening community, Uh, for my melons and was encouraged to write a book on the subject. So I said, why not? I had hung up my my competitive vegetable gardening garb. Happily, uh, Artisan uh, agreed to publish that first book on melon. And the new book on melon, The Melon, is not really a refresher at all, but it's almost entirely a new book that, that reflects a lifetime of learning and practice. Uh, It's um, greatly expanded, for example, Uh, includes a heck of a lot more in terms of watermelons. They're given more of a fair shake. There are more horticultural groups of melon included, some rarities of hardly ever seen or grown in the United States. there's a heck of a lot more de- detail on included in the varietal descriptions. And of course, I've still been working with the amazing photographer, Victor Schrager, all these years, which is a joy and a privilege. And that work is, is ongoing. Give us a little bit of your early background. And you sound like of- my shrink. <laughs> Take okay. me back to I your know childhood. I'm in good hands here. <laughs> okay, and that actually brings up a question. So my first one is um Take us back a little bit. Who were the people and plants and places that grew you into a person that would want to cultivate so intensively and then write about it? Because they are two like hardworking things that require a lot of us, and not everybody grows up to be this. So how did you grow up to be this? And, and then I'll ask my next question. Yeah, so looking back across the decades, I mean, clearly my parents, my mother and father were primary influences. They were, they were mad about melons. My father about green flesh cassava, my mother about watermelons. And both families had um, been involved in the Italian dry goods uh, business. So I grew up with a family atmosphere that celebrated fresh produce and from them especially my father I you know I learned to love the fruits of the earth 
um, apart from my, and I remember, you know, happy, very happy memories of sitting at the table and chowing down on luscious, succulent, delicious fruit. Um, the other early influences in my life uh, came, were, one was Rosalind Creasy, who wrote oh, yeah. the book Cooking from the Garden, which I discovered in 1990. And at that point, I'd been gardening half my life, but I, I knew little about heirlooms and nothing about seed saving. Mm -hmm. So she opened my eyes to a whole new world, and I learned about tomatoes like Radiator Charlie's Mortgage Lifter <laughs> and um, Santa Claus Cassabas. Um, and then the other book was by a fellow named Carrie Fowler called uh, Shattering Food, Politics, and the Loss of Genetic Diversity mm -hmm. in Agriculture. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, never realized at the time, we're talking 1990, yeah. you know, his book in particular alerted me to the fact that we were in the middle of a mass extinction event in agriculture. Yeah. I had no clue. I never realized that one day I would become friends of both of these people and actually marry Carrie Fowler, <laughs> who recently married. It really has been a wonderful journey. So then I want to ask, do you see any correlation or significant intertwining of what would have led you to be a clinical psychologist and the work that you're doing with food and seed and the melon? Yeah, I think... Um... That's a good question. And I think the common denominator is the nurturing impulse. You know, gardening is all about nurturing growth. And so is psychology. And so I guess I have that kind of mindset. They're very similar in that way. And I can't say I practice psychology on my vegetables, but I do talk to them. And if they listen, well, great. <laughs> And and more importantly, maybe the melons and the garden, they uh, lead to our our better mental health and in a way that uh, is psychologically significant, I think. Oh, you are so right about that. Uh, yeah, for me, the garden is a sanctuary as it is for many other people. And it just uh, is a joyful enterprise. Yeah. Okay, so now I want to get into the melon specifically, because you've already brought up a couple of questions or um, ideas that I think really will be of interest to listeners in terms of sorting out what even a melon is, Amy. Run us through the basics of the family. Okay, so I'll try to simplify. Um, <laughs> uh, melon and watermelon are two different species that belong to the cucurbitaceae family of plants. So these are vining plants, fruits that grow on long trailing, at least in the case of melon, watermelon, tendril-bearing vines. So they're space hogs. Um, and this family, according to recent research, uh, phylogenetic research, apparently arose about 70 million years ago in Asia, and then through a series of transoceanic dispersal events, like picture gourds afloat, uh, multiple times they um, floated away to different continents. So 
the more proximate place of origin for melon has actually is is India actually uh, the wild progenitor has been found growing there recently and the closest um, the more proximate place of origin for watermelon is Africa uh, and then just talking about the curcurbits in general I mean then pumpkin and squash found its way to the Americas so it's all very interesting and I kind of gravitate toward them I gravitate toward the the fruit vegetables the fruits of herbaceous plants and especially the luscious fleshy savory mouth-filling fruit vegetables like melon tomato there they do they have this sort of succulence in common all of them and they have this unlikeliness to them with that kind of sometimes warty exterior and you just the unexpectedness of opening them up and seeing that interior colorful moist flesh is just mm, it's pretty great i i agree uh not only is it as a beautiful thing to behold but also t- to eat but there's there's so much diversity in yeah. size and shape and color and texture my book is called the melon but it includes two different species Uh, that are commonly known as melons. So, uh, you know, a watermelon and a melon are both melons in the vernacular. Uh, I'm not going to quibble. I'm not a plant scientist. And most people are not either. So (laughs) (laughs) So true. So true. So I wish I was. If I had to do it over again, I would do a degree in plant science. I got my doctorate in the wrong subject. (laughs) But you've done... Yeah, yeah, (laughs) maybe. Um, so in the melon, in, in the family, melons are one group, watermelons are another group. When you think about the melons, first of all, tell us the species name for melon. Okay, so melon is, the Latin name for melon is Cucumis milo. And the Latin name for watermelon is Citrullus lanatus. So they're two different species in the cucurbitaceae family of plants, and therefore they don't cross with each other, and they have their unique features, but um, a lot in common, too. Let's say there are generally uh, 16 groups of cultivated melon in the world. Twelve of them are represented in the book, Um, and... Watermelon is less genetically diverse, so there aren't those sort of horticultural groups. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know how many exist. Thousands, of course. I'm dancing as fast as I can to grow as many as I can. But we are recipients of, you know, an amazing heritage of varieties that were domesticated and selected and um, by our farming and gardening ancestors, and so we really have an an amazing inheritance. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Amy Goldman is a lifelong gardener and lover of heirloom fruits and vegetables. She's dedicated her adult life to exploring, stewarding, and sharing this love and its many seeds. Her most recent book is The Melon. We'll be right back with more. Stay with us. Hey, so huh, here we are at the end of June. It has been some few months, has it not? 
I don't know where to start. And so I won't. I will let the conversations of the podcast itself stand as what they are. Conversations that try hard to get to the seed stock from which our natural and cultural histories meet and do what they can in the garden, and where and how we grow from there. Despite COVID-19, I have had the opportunity, powerful and transformative in these times, I will add, to gather virtually with some individuals and groups to really sink our teeth into what these times are teaching and unteaching in us as gardeners and as humans. If you've not had the chance to listen in, I'll add links to those of these talks that were recorded, including a wonderful, deep, and true conversation hosted by the San Francisco Botanical Garden on the evening of June 9th, in which I was in conversation with the garden designer and cultural landscape leader, Leslie Bennett who is featured in The Earth in Her Hands, as well as Karen Newport, Executive Director of the historic home and garden, Filoli. While meeting in person still presents a lot of challenges, I am so glad to be able to still be in deeper conversation with groups across the country. I'm the program speaker for several garden book and master gardener groups around the country later this summer and into the fall to really dig into conversation around what it means to cultivate our places, what we can learn from the models and journeys of the women in the earth in her hands, and how we, each of us, go about more consciously and conscientiously growing the world we want to see. I love this nitty-gritty, metaphysical, quantum gardening kind of engagement and the true growing work of it. If your group is interested in speaking to me more about this kind of virtual event, please reach out by email or find out more on the website, cultivatingplace.com. I'll look forward to hearing from you. I will, as always, also keep you posted on open forum events as they come up on the events page at cultivatingplace.com as well. Now, back to the wonderful nitty-gritty story of growing the melon with one of our country's most outspoken seed-saving heirloom variety advocates, Amy Goldman. If you're just joining us, this is Cultivating Place, Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. Heirloom gardener and seed saver, Amy Goldman's mission is to celebrate, catalog, and conserve for the great human commons the magnificent diversity of standard open-pollinated fruit and vegetable varieties. As we come back, she shares her growing process between her first book on melons in 2002 and her newest book, encompassing the additional decade vastly expanding on the subject. Welcome back. Melons are always in my life, so I've been growing them, you know, for years and years. I would say that after I had a a whole bunch that I'd encountered and grown and learned to love that I had not been featured in the first book, I said, um, wow, you know, I want to do something more expansive uh, because there's there's a whole world of melons that I hadn't been aware of Um and 
uh, incredible diversity from all over the world. And so um, I decided, well, time to uh, to buckle down and write a book about it. Um, it was a pretty easy decision to make. Um, and uh, it took years. It took maybe nine growing seasons. So my technique in writing a book is that, um, and this holds true for all my books, is that I grow everything first. The writing comes, the research, and then the writing comes last. I have to feel like I really know these plants and fruits intimately and I, before I can even write about them. And um, I take extensive field notes on every plant every year and do extensive taste tests on every you know, variety every year. And so collect this data and then I figure out what are the most beautiful, the most delicious, the most historic and unusual. What is a representative sample of the diversity that exists in, cultivate, in this cultivated melon and watermelon group? And then I try to pull it together. Right. And you're photographing this whole time, right? This whole time. Yeah, you yeah, and Victor. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of melons I grew to Till I finally whittled it down to 125. Right. Uh, but my main melon patch is situated, I don't know, about 100 yards from the barn studio on my property. And so Victor was there when I need him, when the melons came calling. And <laughs> uh, he set up his um, still life studio in a corner of the barn. And we had all our props and everything and he would work his magic and and set up these beautiful still life vignettes and actually over a course of 19 years that we've worked together you can't tell the difference between those done the first year and done those done the last year uh so he's just been super consistent but um always fresh and novel in his approach uh and he's just fun to work with. And then we get to, you know, so I grow the stuff and I bring it into the barn and I clean it, sort it, grate it, cut it. And then I hand it off to Victor and I don't look at him because I just don't. You know, I let him figure out which props he's going to use. How is he going to make this look its best? How to offset the rind or the skin with, you know, the flesh because every I think nearly every photo, nearly everyone is shows the entire fruit plus the cut fruit. Uh, and then he he has a way that, you know, still astonishes me to this day. And then we get to eat it. I was going to say, <laughs> you know, I think one of the things that the photography really does capture um, – besides the the colorfulness and um, succulence of these plants, for lack of a better word, I just keep saying that because I'm looking at the photos while I'm talking to you, Amy, and um, but the diversity of shape and color and even seed uh, 
organization inside of each fruit is very different and very beautiful in its way. Yeah, thank you very much. You know, uh, Victor's uh, a master at this, and the melons provide the raw material. <laughs> right. Uh, they are so beautiful. So beautiful. Um, it's, it's not true that heirloom vegetables are ugly. No, no. And one of the things that really strikes me is the seed, the, the amount of seed and the different shape, size, color, and configuration of the seed dispersal uh, mechanism, the propagules inside these melons. Talk about this connection because seed saving and the genetics of our food, you've already talked, you've mentioned the importance of them. There's a lovely story in the book, uh, in the narrative about your history and receiving a box of seeds um, from Seed Savers Exchange and really sort of getting down to work with them. Will Will you talk a little bit about that and the importance of that aspect of this work, Amy? Oh, yes. Yeah. So I, I think it was around 1998, 1999, when uh, Seed Savers Exchange sent me a box of melon and watermelon seed. So um, if your listeners don't know what Seed Savers Exchange is, it's uh, the nation's premier nonprofit seed saving group with a membership of, well, I don't know anymore, but you know, a large membership of, you know, home gardeners, backyard orchardists, and others that are keeping the rarest of the rare alive. And uh, so, and I've been very involved with them for many years, but their mission is to conserve and promote America's culturally diverse but endangered food crop heritage for Mm -hmm. future generations um, and to, um, to share heirloom seeds and plants. So here you here I received the rarest of the rare right. in this cardboard. I think it, it was a shoebox. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and in some cases, I, I'd say there were maybe 50 watermelon, uh, 50 melon, not sure anymore. But um, in some cases, those were the last remaining seeds mm-hmm. that they could spare. Mm-hmm. And um some of them were sort of on the verge of disappearing. Uh, So I realized I had in my hands, you know, a gift of great magnitude. And I really made me nervous that if I had a crop failure or God forbid, you know, somebody stole the plants from my garden, I, you know, I would just kick myself. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so I was extra vigilant (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, vigilance for me. I mean, that's the most important skill of the gardener. Uh, And I was able to bring those all to fruition and save pure seed from them uh, that I could regrow and share and save and and then feature in the book. Yeah, there was there was one there was one uh, melon in there in particular that, you know, stands out. And that was the Ford Hook Gem melon. And at that point, 99 or so, 1999, that that fantastic melon had been dropped from commercial production and vanished from cultivation, except in a few 
spots here and there in backyard gardens. Uh, Fort of Gem is a um, one of my favorite green-fleshed musk melons, and it was introduced by Burpee, I think, in the, somewhere in the 60s and then dropped by them in, from com their catalog in the early 80s. Um, but, the, you know, it's just sumptuous, sweet, delicious, melting uh, flesh. And it's very early, actually, and can be grown in many gardens. But that was one of the ones included. And even to this day, it's not being offered commercially by anyone. And I've been, I mean, it, it was for a couple of years and then it was dropped subsequently. So my hope is that, you know, some seed company will be listening and mm -hmm. and uh, re-offer it. I, I've been offering it to members of Seed Savers through our annual yearbook mm -hmm you know, since 06, I think. But um, anyway, there it's so worthy and so delicious. And, you know, it'll knock your socks off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That and that, that diversity, you know, we use the word melon, we use the word watermelon, and a particular image comes to mind. I could probably name, I don't know, maybe four, uh, you know, of the, the different watermelons and or melons. And you know, your book has 125 and that you had to whittle down from what diversity was available. Uh, so there is so much out there. And the importance of growing the seed out, saving from that, sharing not only the seed but the fruit out with the world – it's a really important dynamic process. Uh, you can't just save the seed and let seed savers exchange hold it for the next hundred years and hope that it will be viable. These are living, breathing organisms that we are in relationship with, and they have to be grown out, eaten, and shared, right? Yeah, well, that you're describing what's called eater-based conservation, but I think, you know, a, a global strategy is to both preserve it yeah, you know, in vivo and and also uh, in seed banks um, where you know breeders and others can can um, employ those seeds to breed better varieties, more disease resistant, mm -hmm. say or or so forth. So my mission is to you know celebrate the magnificent diversity of these fruits and to promote their conservation. And um, encourage, you know, I. the book really teaches you how to grow yeah. melon and watermelon, how to find a good one in the market and everything you need to save your own seeds and uh, recipes to enjoy the harvest. But um, the book teaches you that. And my hope is that, you know, more people, especially the younger generation, will come on board and yeah, try get excited. these and grow them and share them. And if they're, you know, they live in an urban area, well, ask their local market to please carry these because they actually, all of these can be grown commercially, nearly all of them. Mm -hmm. I'd like to, them to, to, um, to not be in the catalog of extinct experiences. 
I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Amy Goldman is a lifelong gardener and lover of heirloom fruits and vegetables. She's dedicated her adult life to exploring, stewarding, and sharing this love and its many seeds forward. Her most recent book is The Melon. We'll be right back with more. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week. Seed saving is an ancient act, practice, and art of being in relationship with plants in our world, dating back to humans walking this earth with these beloved plants. It is sacred and meaningful work, and part of what being a gardener opens up to us and calls to us to do. To know seed, to save seed, to protect seed, is good, good work. When I first started laying out the horticultural and cultural threads of importance that I wanted to represent in the earth in her hands back in 2017, I knew that the women at work in responsible, heartfelt seed work had to be among them. Besides the folks behind Seed Savers Exchange, which Amy recommended we all look into, please also look into the work of Rowan White and Sierra Seeds. Rowan hosts a deeply immersive mentorship on ethical and responsible seed stewardship that anyone would find transformative. Also, the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange based in Virginia, the Organic Seed Alliance based in Oregon, and the work of Vandana Shiva in India. Care for, protection of, and stewardship of seed in our world is political. It's environmental, it is about sustainability, and it is economic work of the highest order. I hope you will consider learning more and doing more in each of your own small or large garden ways. If you're just joining us, this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Heirloom gardener and seed saver Amy Goldman's mission is to celebrate, catalog, and conserve standard open-pollinated fruit and vegetable varieties. As we come back, she is sharing with us more on how her newest book, The Melon, encourages everyone to grow, enjoy, save seed from, and share forward the great diversity of melons and watermelons, plants whose ancient wild progenitors hail from Africa, India, and Persian regions. The forward is the first thing uh, on the table of contents. It's re- it is the last thing that I wrote. I couldn't write it until the book was done because it's a very personal thing. Um, a Garden of Delights is the next chapter. And, you know, it talks about the virtues of uh, melon and watermelon. Um, and our vanishing vegetable heritage. Um, Then there's picking and choosing ripe melons and watermelons, and that's picking and choosing whether in the market or in your own garden and how to, uh, and what qualities to look for um, and when to harvest at um, 
maximum sweetness. Um, not all melons are designed to be sweet. There are some cucumber-like melons, but uh, teaching people how to look for the right signs, um, depending on the type of melon. Uh, um, not all melons are designed to be um, delicious. In fact, um, there are a lot of melons, say muskmelons, the netted melons, or the ropey melons that are so common in America. Um, some that can smell ambrosial, but still disappoint the connoisseur. So there are varieties that have more fine flavor than others. And so I'm trying to point people in that direction, which are the better ones, because, you know, yeah, let's eat fruits and vegetables, but let's eat better fruits and vegetables. Right. And and given how how much room they take and how much vigilance they take, uh, a couple of disappointments um, will set you set you off growing them. And that you when you were just talking about how to pick good ones in the field or in the market, I remember m growing my first like moon and stars. I think it was uh, in my garden, and I had no idea how to tell when they were ripe, Amy. And so it's not I easy. Was, it's not in the, in no. the the like stress of not wanting to pick one too early because I only had, you know, a few in my small garden and I didn't want to waste them. So it was it was actually sort of stressful. So this was a really useful section of the book for me. Well, I yeah. And I think a lot of people, me included, experience that. I, yeah. I mean, apart from doing an MRI on intact <laughs> watermelons like the Japanese do, there's no sure way, but there are, you know, some good signs if you're in, in the garden, if uh, you check days to maturity to see if maybe you're in the ballpark, mm -hmm. um, yeah. you see if the melon, the watermelon uh, is weighty for its size, if the tendril next to the stem is turned brown, and particularly if the belly of the beast, the ground spot has turned from white to yellow or yellowish. Um, I, I say in the book, just pick the biggest one first. <laughs> <laughs> and if that's a flop, okay, make watermelon rind pickles. Right, right. And, and be a little more patient. But, you know, I know if I put my watermelons out, I start them in the greenhouse and I put them in the garden the first or second week of June, I know that by the third week of August, most of them are going to be ready. Yeah. But I know that I, I divide the watermelons and melons in the book into early, mid-season and late varieties. Mm -hmm. So that gives a clue yeah. uh, as to when to pick. But that moon and stars is fabulous. Mm, mm, I hope it was you fun. succeeded. I did. I did. I got I, at least one was just right. Um, remind us what zone you are in, Amy. I'm in zone five. See, so that should give people a really nice indication that if Amy can grow these in zone five, a lot of us can grow a lot of these and um, experiment and have fun with them. Well, that is true. So, um, no, it's absolutely true. If, uh, of course, melons love warm, hot climates um, with high insulation, sunny place, uh, and, a, you know, a long season. Uh, mm -hmm. But if you can't provide all of that, there are ways to uh, 
to rush the season. You know, I have my tricks mm-hmm. of the trade and they're all laid out there. And so the next section of the book is the growing section where, mm-hmm. you know, I just share everything I know about how to grow melons and watermelons successfully, uh, including in, you know, in my area, I always use black plastic mulch to cover the garden because it speeds growth uh, and uh, and yield. Um, and so, and I use spun polyester row covers over my melon hills early in the season to protect against drying winds and the chill Mm -hmm. and to keep out the first hatch of various varmints, uh, pests. Um, The next two sections are about how to save heirloom seeds. So you had referred, Jennifer, earlier to the fact that melon and watermelon have different distribution of seeds in them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Watermelon seeds are, of course, sprinkled throughout melons on the other hand have a central seed cavity where all the seeds are housed and uh, one rule is that you know when the melon or watermelon is ready to eat so are the seeds ready to be harvested because they're mature Um, Mm -hmm. and then in order to save pure harvested seed I give all the directions on yeah. Um, hand pollination or isolation by distance. But if you're just growing the fruits for fun and enjoyment, then you don't have to worry about keeping the seed pure. Um, but I'm hoping to hook some people into joining the Seed Savers Exchange and learning more mm-hmm. about how to save seed um, and so forth. And then I guess the heart and soul of the melon is um, the portraits the yeah. varietal, the portraits in words and photographs of 125 extraordinary varieties. Uh, so there's a great deal of detail, everything you need to know about the history or the culture or days to maturity. Um, what the BRICS reading is, the BRICS is the, the level of sugar content, and that's really important if you're growing sweet dessert watermelons or melons but there of course there are there are certain melons like the snake melons and uh, the carousello melons that are designed to be harvested immature and eaten like cucumber and those are wonderful for people in short season areas um Mm -hmm. so um the yeah the descriptions the photographs Um, and then there's a section on recipes. There are 20 wonderful recipes in there. I think I'm a little heavy on the, the beverages, but that's okay. (laughs) I think, you know, uh, melon is not just for dessert anymore. So you, every course imaginable. Um, and then I have an extensive listing of seed sources, um, where nearly every, I think every variety in the book, uh, can be sourced. Nice. Um, and it, so this book is really focused on North America, Canada, Canadian and American, North and American seed sources. Mm-hmm. And they're just a marvelous group of, of uh, seed companies these days, um, extensive bibliography, et cetera, et cetera. So, so in, in looking at this, 
and I know this is hard. This is like saying, what's your favorite baby? But what if you were to like this far out from having completed the book and, you know, in the middle of winter, not in the middle of prime melon eating season, what are the five that come to mind for you of like, that was a really fun one to grow. That was a really great photograph. That was, this is one I would recommend to everybody to try. Oh, oh my goodness. That is like <laughs> choosing between my my children. I, you know, I have many favorites and, you know, 125 I of know. them are, are in the book. Um, well, first thing that comes to mind for watermelon is the crimson sweet. And it, it may seem paradoxical that crimson sweet is uh, arguably the most popular watermelon in the entire world, but it's still an heirloom. So an heirloom doesn't have to be rare. And um, it owes its success to its its quality attributes. I mean, it's sweet and crisp and wonderful and big and juicy. And it was bred, you know, by uh, Kansas State, um, which shows the value of the you know, public breeding programs. Um, and it's widely adaptable, delicious, um, pretty easy to grow. <laughs> um, so that's a favorite, Crimson Sweet. And there's there's a sister to that called All Sweet, which is wonderful as well. Um, among watermelons, um, I would say... Uh, Maybe Odell's large white was new to me, um, and it's a it's a delicious sort of um, light green rinded uh, uh, black diamond shaped watermelon, big, mm -hmm. okay, and it it has luscious um, uh, flesh, pink flesh. Um, but the story is is a lot of fun. Um, the story behind it, it's sort of a you know, whereas the moon and stars, we didn't go into the story. The moon and stars watermelon was a lost and found story. So is our Odell's large white. And um, it was just happenstance that I I ran into uh, Roger and Karen Wynn at Monticello one day in the bookstore. We got to talking. They told me that Karen's family had been keeping a watermelon for over 100 mm. years in the you know they're on their farmstead in the the south fork of um of uh or the dutch fork of south carolina and um it it turns out long story short because there is a long story there um that it actually had been developed at ravenscroft uh uh by um an unknown african american man you know before the civil war um and uh, also the Ravenscroft watermelon, which I unfortunately didn't get to include in the book because I grew it too late, um, was also developed there and was um, thought to be extinct. But no, both, both watermelons were found growing about 10 or 15 miles away from where they originated. Wow. So there are pockets in America where you know, seed savers like the winds and so many others are preserving these um, mm -hmm. wonders. Um, so I love stories like that. I have so many. You have so favorites. many of them, which um, is, yeah. You know, I'd, I'd have to mention the Queen Anne's Pocket Melon, 
which also appeared in the first book. But just because it's so much fun, it was designed, designed, huh? Maybe selected. It, it's to be perfume. Okay, it's a small oval striped melon uh, that has an unforgettable perfume. And it was, recent research shows that it it, uh, originated in Persia or Iraq or in that region uh, about, you know, it's it's been known and grown for over a thousand years. And um, there are records of it uh, in early texts and so forth. Um, and it's just wonderful. It's just fun to grow one, one little Queen Anne's pocket melon can perfume a room and why pocket melon? You can put it in your pocket. Women used to do that in the olden days in place of, uh, aerosol deodorant in the days before, you know, that to perfume themselves or just, uh, it's a joy. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, let's see, crane melon is one maybe known to you and, uh, and famous in California. Mm -hmm. It's, um, a, uh, Crenshaw type that was, uh, developed by the crane family in Santa Rosa, grown by them to this day, six generations, five or six generations later with a luscious, um, uh, orange flesh like, like sherbet. And, um, it, you know, it's delicious. It has an unusual appearance is sort of freckled, um, and very wonderful people who, you know, have tasted only kind of supermarket honeydews that have been harvested too young and gassed with ethylene would never know what they are missing. Right. Uh, yeah, so so I could go on and on, and <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to work myself up into a lather here. <laughs> but there are so many wonderful, so many wonderful melons, and you know, for people in short season areas, the Caracello melons of Italy are, or are really great. The cucumber melons really early, but can be grown anywhere and even in a small garden. Um, the, yeah. the makua or oriental sweet melons are fabulous. I mean, super sweet, early, crunchy, uh, delicious. You can eat the seed and the, and the skin. Um, yeah, those are, they're, those are fun. There's so many fun melons to grow that we can all grow successfully in this country. And it really is inspirational to try more. I already have, oh, I don't know, 15 dog-eared to try this coming season. So, um, All right. Okay. I know. That's, and so if, I, if I'm excited, that's I'm good. I'm glad. <laughs> um, the, you know, to, to sort of bring us full circle here, you know, and you've mentioned and touched on a lot of this, um, especially when it comes to, you know, your seed sources and the importance of the seed saving and the lost and found stories and just the deliciousness of these these plants in our world. But when you look back over all these years of you growing them and eating them and learning about them and you you think about you know, some of the challenges in our world today, Amy, of which there are many, you know, what, what does this come back to 
in its most essential universal importance? Well, you know, the first thing I think about when you ask that question is, um, is the, um, the genetics of these, some of these melons that can be used and have been used in this uh, climate changing world um, to um, promote better tolerance to salinity soil salinity, for example, because as the climate gets hotter um, and drier, then soils and water become more saline. So there are a lot of valuable genes in some of these varieties here that can be bred. Um, Also, genes for pest resistance, um, drought, and so forth. So in terms of um, their usefulness going forward, it's course there's the you know the great enjoyment i mean um uh, to paraphrase um i forget who (laughs) but i mean melon and watermelon has the power to make you happy just growing them Mm -hmm. eating them i mean it's a joy and a simple pleasure in this crazy world and be ashamed not to experience it uh yeah yeah. i hope that answers your question It does. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It was a treat to speak with you about this wonderful topic. Oh, yay. Okay. Thank you very much, Jennifer, for the opportunity. It's a pleasure talking to you. Amy Goldman is a gardener, author, artist, and longtime advocate for seed saving, plant breeding, and heirloom fruits and vegetables. Her books include Melons for the Passionate Grower, The Complete Squash, and most recently, The Melon. An evangelical seed saver, she encourages everyone to grow, enjoy, save seed from, and share forward the great diversity of these beautiful fruits. Finally, she notes that the ancient wild progenitors of melons and watermelons hail from Africa, India, and ancient Persian regions of the globe, and their histories are intimately intertwined with the people of these places and their diasporas across time and space. So they hold genetic and cultural knowledge of great value. Join us again next week in honor of the 4th of July, when I will be joined by the esteemed thinker, writer, and gardener Jamaica Kincaid, whose work entitled My Garden Book was published in the late 1990s and explores many threads around how the long history of colonialism and its attendant enslavement and displacement of people and plants and their long, rich histories is a narrative fully legible in our gardens and horticulture of today. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio, now also heard weekly on KWMR in Point Reyes Station on California's northern coast. Over on CultivatingPlace.com this week, you won't want to miss this week's episode notes and the gorgeous portraits of our melon and watermelon families, as grown by Amy and photographed by Victor Schrager. They are the art of the garden. 
Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.